Thanks to last year's legislation to help the semiconductor industry, the National Science Foundation got a record $9.9 billion budget for fiscal 2023. Already, the NSF has widened its collaboration with the Energy Department, established partnerships with four big semiconductor companies, even launched a new artificial intelligence institute devoted to speech pathology. Here with more of what it's all up to, NSF Director Dr. Setramon Panchanathan. Dr. P., good to have you back. Tom, it's always great to be back with you. And let's talk about the budget. I kind of simplified how that $9.9 billion came in. There was some appropriations, some extra money from the semiconductor bill, but this is really an expansion in all ways, percentage-wise, dollar-wise. Do you feel equipped to be able to use it effectively in the time given? Tom, since we spoke last, I, I emphasize the importance of how talent and ideas are democratized all across our nation, that the innovation potential resides in every part of our nation. I'm delighted to report that with this increased investment and thanks to the Biden-Harris administration and the bipartisan support from Congress, that we have gotten this infusion of resources at this very, very important time for our nation, where we're able to therefore unleash those talent and ideas, where we're able to build the innovation centers all across our nation. This is the moment, and I'm so grateful and glad that we are able to move this path forward for our nation into the future. But, you know, agencies have gotten these influxes of money for a variety of reasons, COVID, semiconductors, infrastructure. Do you feel that you have the organizational power to be able to manage and expend the money in an effective way? Because that's, that's a challenge. Absolutely, Tom, because NSF has been, as you know, again, to an earlier conversation that we had, I had talked about the fact that there are so many ideas, so many good possibilities that are out there that people tell me that it is not being funded at the fullest level. And here is an opportunity for us to really do the right thing at the right time. And so I feel that this investment is perfectly timed. There's a lot of great ideas and great talent to be nurtured. I repeat myself here. And in order to do that, these resources is very, very timely to be able to deploy it all across our nation. And so then in the, say, research grant agenda, then you can probably pull in a lot of maybe institutions that have not historically participated and yet have the brain power that they could bring value to a grant from NSF. Perfectly said, Tom. I've been traveling all around the country with some of the leaders uh, in our congressional delegations. So what I've done, I've watched firsthand. I've been, just in the last few months, I've been to Mississippi State, Clemson, Pittsburgh State, Wichita State, you know, in New Hampshire, everywhere. And wherever I go, I see the tremendous talent and potential that is there. So clearly, we are in a moment where we can really deploy these resources very effectively in terms of getting to the outcomes that we seek. And when we talk about proposals coming from those institutions that have not had their presence at NSF, I ask the question, why? Why is it that if talent and ideas are democratized and are everywhere across our nation, what then precludes for example, a minority-serving institution or a Research 2 institution or institutions from places or community colleges and others which do not have their fair share of being able to have their ideas represented. It turns out, Tom, that it is because of the fact that the research infrastructure that is available to help faculty to put their ideas or researchers to put their ideas in a form that transcends the gold standard merit review of NSF is something that is not present everywhere. So we have launched a new program called Granted. It is an acronym growing research access through nationally transformative equity and diversity. That's what Granted stands for. Simply put, it's a virtual research office that will be available for any faculty member, any researcher, any institution from any of those institutions that we talked about, community colleges, 
minority serving institutions, institutions like the research two institutions to be able to also participate and partake in this unbelievable future that we're all envisioning for our nation. And when you mention the diversity under this granted, does that also extend to people that may have really what seem like off the wall ideas about a particular problem? Because often big solutions, transformative ideas come from people that go counter to the accepted wisdom or grain. Again, Tom, that's a good point. NSF can be best described as a high-risk, high-reward agency. There are many, many case studies to showcase in this context of showing that when you invest in those, if you want to call them you know, out-of-the-box ideas or sometimes even crazy ideas, they then have been the source of unbelievable rewards. And there are many examples, and we won't go into that in detail here. But that's what NSF does best. And so absolutely correct. We are going to be able to unleash those transformative ideas, those fundamental ideas, those out-of-the-box ideas, so that we might then ensure that we are unleashing those possibilities for the future and keeping us in the vanguard of innovation and competitiveness as a nation into the future. We're speaking with Dr. Setraman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. And under the granted program, some of these newer institutions that are coming into this research orbit for whatever topic specifically might be, does the program also include let's say, building their capacity to be able to use government grants and understand that whole process and make sure that what they do meets you know, the requirements to fulfill under grants programs other than just the research itself. So are you building that capacity so that they can kind of permanently be part of that ecosystem? Absolutely. What we're doing here is not only helping with finding opportunities and then translating the ideas through successful proposal writing and management, grant management, pre-award, post-award help, help with securing the appropriate partnerships, help with IP and other kinds of issues that typically you know, people get help in the established institutions, all of this support will be provided. So that over time, with the grants coming in, that they will be able to build their own capacities to do those things also. And so it's, a, it's if you want to put it the best way, it's a spiraling up in terms of being able to participate rather than getting stuck or spiraling down in terms of not being able to participate. So that's what we're trying to do at NSF, and I'm very confident that we will be able to change the demographic of participation and therefore the unbelievable ideas that will be unleashed because of that. And I guess if you think optimistically, that could transmit from those institutions out to their communities, maybe at the pre-college level, so people can envision what's possible when their brains are engaged in STEM. That's well said, Tom. You know, there are two things that happen. When these institutions are successful, Guess where most of the diverse population of students go to? They go to first to these institutions. And therefore, now we are guaranteeing the diversity of ideas, diversity of talent, diversity of experiences. All of that is captured by all the students that go through these institutions, as well as, as you said, empowering the K-12 systems in those regions. And at the other end, empowering the innovation ecosystems also. So the jobs of the future and the entrepreneurial environments of the future, new industries of the future are created right there. So it becomes successful innovation ecosystems all across our nation. Now, when you're dealing with partnerships with companies like Ericsson, IBM, Intel, and Samsung, switching gears here, those are pretty savvy players with a lot of talent and engineering know-how. Tell us about those partnerships. And this is under some of the CHIPS Act and the semiconductor stimulus money that is going through NSF. What's going on with those partnerships? So, Tom, on many, many programs, you talked about the AI institutes earlier in your introduction. Take any of the programs, quantum, AI, advanced wireless, semiconductors, biotechnology. It's about partnering with a lot of companies which are already engaged in this, 
also partnering with young entrepreneurs who are thinking about the future companies. And so in this situation that you're talking about, this example of a partnership with essentially Ericsson, IBM, Intel, and Samsung is around the future of semiconductors called the FUSE program. Essentially, it is going to support fundamental research, enabling the core design of semiconductor materials, devices, and systems that will propel the U.S. semiconductoring manufacturing and applications beyond the limits of Moore's law and discover new application spaces. So that's what we want to do to be in the vanguard of how we look at the future for semiconductors as it plays a role in every aspect of our lives these days. Right, because optical etching and the deposition techniques that are common now, and they're still advancing on those, but at some point those will cease to yield greater and greater numbers of transistors and logic on a chip. And so there are fundamentally different ways of approaching transistors, let's say, and associated components that gets us out of applied research and into basic. It is all the way, the spectrum of all of that, applied of course, fundamental basic research, applied research, translational research, and then in partnership with companies, how do we then translate those technologies into the marketplace and how do we also build new companies for the future? All of that together working symbiotically. And it's interesting that you know Ericsson is European-based and Samsung is Korean-based. And so how does that figure in, the U.S. taxpayer money flowing to foreign companies? How is that all managed? Now, in fact, it's the other way about, right? Those companies are investing and co-investing with us so that we might launch on these programs, right? Those companies believe that the talent and ideas in the United States is going to position them to be competitive. These are like-minded partners, you know, companies coming from our like-minded partners who believe in the fundamental aspects, tenets of scientific progress, openness, transparency, reciprocity, research integrity, respect for intellectual property, and a whole host of other values that we share. So then it is possible for us to work together, hyper-partner, so that we can deliver for our citizens and solve global grand challenge problems. And will some of the results of this type of fundamental research be available only to those companies, or is there some way of disseminating it in the economy for the next Silicon Valley? So basically what we do is when these companies participate in this kind of a consortium mode, we give them a non-exclusive, worldwide, paid-up, non-transferable, irrevocable, royalty-free license to all the intellectual property rights and any inventions that are conceived or first reduced to practice in the performance of the program work under the funding agreement. But then if people then want to take it up and then start to develop exclusive partnerships, then they will work with the appropriate researchers or research groups and then start to engage in that kind of a forum. So that's how we approach these things. Got it. And is that underway yet? And is there a, like a locus of this physically, a building or an office? Because these are big outfits. And how does it all work functionally? So these are funded projects, right? At the end of the day, people, when we have these programs wired together, we then send a call for proposals. Then there are universities partnering with other entities coming to us with proposals and then saying that we are going to be able to deliver on what you're envisioning here with these companies. And then we fund the best quality proposals through our gold standard merit review. And then the work then gets conducted there. And NSF is able to catalyze, invest, enable, and partner with these institutions to make sure that they are delivering on the outcomes. So you're mainly a convener almost in this particular context. Yeah, you're a convener, but also an investor. Investor is a powerful way of shaping the future and the directions of how you want to steer the amazing ideas into outcomes that we think are important for the nation at this time. Sure, money in the game is better than skin in the game. You could say that, yes. I wanted to ask you about the relationship with the Energy Department. This is long-standing, but there's been a fairly step-function widening of that between the NSF and the Energy Department. 
expanded collaboration. What are some of the purposes behind that and what form will that take? So, you know, Department of Energy and NSF have been great partners. We have partnered on several things, including large facilities where we co-invest in those. So basically what we have tried to do here is to see if we can further expand the intensity, the breadth, and speed of collaboration between NSF and the Department of Energy's Office of Science. As I said, we have many outstanding long-term collaborations, and this memorializes our commitment to extend the partnership to all areas of research funded by NSF and DOE's Office of Science. So the overarching goal of this MOU is to add value in what we do for the nation by leveraging each other's strengths to advance the frontiers of science, engineering, and education. As you can imagine, there's tons of opportunity here, Tom, whether it is clean energy, it is climate, whether it is a whole host of other fundamental scientific discoveries and innovations. I mean, this opens up tremendous possibilities. And I'm a huge fan of partnerships. You alluded to this earlier, public-private partnership, interagency partnership, international partnership with like-minded partners, and partnership with economic development ecosystems, partnership with entrepreneurial ecosystems. That's how we are going to move this nation at speed and scale. Because, you know, energy is a broad word, and there are many forms of energy under research, including nuclear, but beyond the proving of concepts and basic research, energy has to be translated into production so that energy is produced at the scale a country this size needs. So where does the research collaboration begin and end, or does it go all the way through proving grounds to see if concepts can work at scale? The research collaborations go all the way through, Tom, and then there are areas where we hyper-partner in basic research, of course. There are areas of applied research that we partner in. We launched our technology innovation partnerships directorate called the TIP directorate. We talked about it briefly last time when we spoke, and now it is real because we are launching the regional innovation engines program. Guess what? We have representation from every state, every territory of our nation, presenting fantastic ideas of their innovation. And so how do we then start to, as you rightly point out, how do we then start to take these ideas and applied research concepts, then translate them into technologies of the future by creating the entrepreneurial ecosystems and in the industries of the future? And that's what we're doing. We are going to be partnering at all levels to ensure that through that partnership, as I said earlier, we are going to strengthen its speed and scale. And sometimes research gets down to the very small level, such as a child who needs speech pathological help. And so we mentioned that at the beginning. This is not just an artificial intelligence institute. There's a lot of those around, frankly. This one is devoted to speech pathology needs of children? Yes. So, you know, if you look at the possibilities, right, I mean, you look at every child. We all know this. Every child is a gift of God. And therefore, basically, you can, you can already see that it is our responsibility to see how we can take that innate latent talent and express it in its fullest form. And so these kinds of projects, therefore, make possible development of new ideas and new technologies, but also understanding the core issues and see how we can help these children to express their talent in the fullest form. So uh, the AI project, the AI Institute that you talked about that we have launched recently, I'm very proud of that because AI is often thought of as, oh, but it is you know only for the so-called haves, but it is not. AI is about haves, have-nots, everybody. Everybody can benefit from this AI revolution and that's what NSF is committed to, to unleashing the possibilities everywhere. My guest is Dr. Saturaman Panchanathan, director of the National Science Foundation. All right. And so what is the grand challenge here in speech pathology? The grand challenge is, I mean, basically, how do we assist a kid with speech issues to be able to take and understand what the issues are and develop personalized mechanisms by which we can bring out their talent and their abilities to the fullest form? And that's personalized. Every individual is different. You know, it's not 
uh, you know, uh, one-size-fits-all approach. So with AI, what you do is it's almost like a human and the machine working together as partners, learning from each other, and therefore making those possibilities for every individual. And depending on what their specific challenges might be, and in case of speech pathology, it is about you know speech-related and language-related issues that then are addressed in a very targeted manner so that they are able to get their best talent expressed. And this will be by a $20 million grant to the Education Institute of Education Sciences at yeah, University of Buffalo. We found that that group had, the, through their partnerships, developed a very strong set of you know ideas and then translatable possibilities and impact. And we looked at it and, uh, of course, the gold standard review process determined that this was an outstanding proposal. So that's why NSF chose to invest in this, because we know that it's going to produce some remarkable possibilities. Well, you've got a lot going on. I just wanted to wrap up with what about the human capital requirements of the NSF itself, because each one of these initiatives, and we only touched on a few of them under the funding coming up in this coming fiscal year, the current fiscal year, you need a program manager. So are you adding program managers and are you looking to staff up just to make sure that there's good oversight and management of all of these growing numbers of programs? Tom, absolutely. I mean, uh, NSF as an agency, we take pride in the fact that 94% of our resources of the budget disseminated to the people that do the real work and get maximal impact. So we try to keep our operations to as minimal as possible, but delivering on all the operational savviness that is required and to ensure that all the compliance as well as oversight is also built in. So we will, yes, we will add some people, but we are always mindful of the fact that we need to do that with technology also as an assist. How much can you do things with technology? How much can we do with people? And where is that soft touch that is required and then expand where, you know, where there needs to be expansion, but always mindful of the fact that we should take advantage of the fact that there are technologies that can also be used and deployed to deliver quality outcomes. Right. And you need a pretty good dashboard yourself to look at every morning. Absolutely. Every facet of this agency is something that we want to look at and how we are doing. Are we challenging ourselves more? Are we being more innovative? I always say, Tom, that if we are the agency that is responsible for essentially unleashing innovation everywhere, it starts right at home. Are we an agency that is using innovation in everything that we do? Are we looking inward and making sure that we're doing the best possible way of finding solutions to problems inside the agency in every aspect of our operations? Yes, the answer is yes. Dr. Setraman Panchanathan is director of the National Science Foundation. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was truly a pleasure talking to you. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Stay smart. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.